Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So we typically think of the quality of reverence as connected with religion. But my guest today on the show argues that reverence is a virtue that extends past religious ceremony and is vital for the flourishing of human society. His name is Paul Woodruff. He's a professor of humanities at the University of Texas and the author of the book, Reverence, Renewing a Forgotten Virtue. And on today's show, Professor Woodruff and I discuss what the ancient Greeks and ancient Chinese can teach us about reverence why reverence has been forgotten in our modern age, and what you can do in your own life to renew this virtue. Great show with some great insights. Uh, after the show is over, be sure to check the show notes at aom.is reverence. Well, Professor Paul Woodruff, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Uh, so you are a professor of philosophy. You've written uh, several books. Uh, you focus on Greek philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy. Um, and the book I'd like to talk about today is Reverence, Renewing a Forgotten Virtue. Um, before we get into reverence, the virtue of reverence and what, it's, what it looks like, let's talk about virtue in general, because it seems like the framework for uh, reverence is virtue ethics. Um, for those who aren't familiar with virtue ethics, can you give us a, a summary of what it is and how it differs from other ethical frameworks? Well, most people think of ethics in terms of rules, like never tell a lie. Uh, and rule-based ethics is, is, is limited because we all know there are circumstances in which it seems right to tell a lie. For example, when the Gestapo's knocking at the door to ask where the refugees are, take them away. Uh, so I think of virtue ethics as uh, adverbial. You know, the, the brave person is one who lives uh, bravely or courageously uh, as, much as, as much as he can. And by the way, it's nice to talking about virtue on this website because the etymology of virtue is uh, the Latin word vir for man, manliness, uh, or maturity. Right. I think maybe a better a better word for what we're talking about here. I think of a, a virtue as not a fixed trait, because even the courageous person is sometimes going to fail in courage, but more as a commitment to live in a certain way, to make decisions in a certain way. So the virtue ethicist thinks about uh, adverbs, about how to how to live and how to make decisions. And how does one become more virtuous within um, virtue ethics? I mean, Aristotle wrote a lot about this in the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, 
So how, how does one become virtuous? Well, one becomes virtuous, according to Aristotle, uh, by uh, cultivating uh, the patterns of behavior that you see in, in virtuous people until those patterns really become yours and you're choosing what to do uh, out of your own uh, character and not simply by imitating others. So it's a it's a dual uh, process becoming virtuous. The uh, the Chinese theory of virtue. There's a fascinating theory of virtue in the Chinese tradition that comes down from Confucius and Mencius, uh, and that uh, starts with the idea that every human being is born with uh, certain sprouts, uh, like uh, like rice sprouts, uh, that can grow into virtues if they're properly cultivated. So for uh, Confucian ethics, the goal of ethics is to cultivate one's own capacity for, for living virtuously. And one does that in society. Long story there. Right. And, and, and so, I mean, the, the assumption there, I guess, in the Chinese uh, view would be that you, you can't be virtuous without the virtue or like you have to I mean, so you already have to have that virtue within you in order for you to be able to cultivate it. Uh, I think that there's got to be something for you to cultivate. And I, I think if you were born uh, without any uh, sprout of courage uh, or, or reverence or uh, justice, uh, that it would be very hard for you to to develop it. That what perhaps impossible, you'd be a sociopath. Uh, in becoming uh, more virtuous, you really need to find what what's in you that's already right, uh, and 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 make that better. And and the same in interacting with other people, you need to find what what they have in them uh, that is is moving in the right direction and try to uh, cultivate that and bring that forward. Okay. So let's talk about the virtue of, of reverence. Um, Cause I think we've all heard of, you know, I think when people think virtues, they think courage, justice, um, wisdom. Um, but it, people don't think of reverence. Um, we often associate reverence with religion, but you argue that it's not an exclusively religious virtue. So how do you define reverence so that it's not exclu- not exclusively in the domain of religion or faith? Well, let me start with the opposite of reverence. Uh, I think the opposite of reverence is what the Greeks call hubris, which is the overweening pride or arrogance of uh, a man uh, who, who really thinks he has godlike attributes. If you think you can never go wrong, if you think you're invulnerable, if you think that you've been so successful that success will follow you all your life, you're falling into hubris. Uh, Reverence is the virtue that protects you from that. Felt recognition of of human limitations, a felt recognition of really what it is to be human. And so, I mean, it, it, so, it, but no, it's not I, humility, though, right? I mean, it's even though it's the opposite of hubris, reverence isn't humility per se, right? Because I think the opposite of humility is pride, and pride is often a good thing. Uh, so, I, 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 some years ago, gave a talk on reverence at a at a meeting of uh, Roman Catholics and, and nuns, and I was asked this question about humility, 
and I said that I think uh, people often preach uh, humility to those whom they want to uh, bow down to them. Uh, and the uh, the nuns all nodded. They, they were tired of being told to uh, be more humble. And a great soul is compatible with reverence, but it's not compatible with abject humility. And I, I believe in your book, you, you, you kind of define reverence in terms of feelings, right? Uh, it reminded me, your defi- I think you have a good definition. It reminded me of the definition of practical wisdom, or uh, I forgot the Greek word for it. Um, but it's like having the right feelings at the right time for the right reason. So reverence seems to be based in feelings, right? I, all, I think all of the virtues are based in feelings. And it's because they're based in feelings, they, they motivate us. Uh, there's not much motivational power in a rule. Uh, but if you have in you a strong feeling uh, to, of courage or a strong feeling of reverence, that is motivating. Feelings make us do things. Uh, shame makes us run away. Courage makes us stand up. Anger makes us want to... Uh, reverence uh, helps us uh, feel awe in the face of something that is a greater power than we are, uh, the transcendent, uh, for example. So certainly reverence can be connected with religion because the reverent person is uh, feels awe at the, at the thought of God. But I don't think the only transcendent object uh, for which we should feel awe is there are other transcendence uh, around us. We, we might feel awe in the presence of nature. We might feel awe uh, in the presence of, at the thought of justice as an ideal and so on. Yeah. I mean, those are some good examples of non, particularly non-religious examples of things you be reverent to. But I think you also talk, you can be reverent towards, you know, even political institutions. And that's, I know that might be a hard pill for people to swallow in this day and age when they might be cynical about our political institutions, but reverence is something, that's something you could possibly give reverence to. Well, the, the, our constitution is an interesting case. And so is our declaration of independence. Uh, I don't feel reverence for the document in either case, but I do feel reverence for the idea uh, behind it. Uh, I just was reading a wonderful book by Danielle Allen called Our Declaration about the Declaration of Independence. This is an African-American woman finding in the Declaration of Independence a concept of equality that she can share. Well, the authors of that document weren't thinking of it that way at all, Uh, but she found in the document a commitment to the idea which she, uh, for which she does feel reverence, obviously. And is reverence um, a public or private virtue, or is it both? I, I think it's both. Uh, I think it's a public virtue in that uh, reverence is expressed in ceremonies that we share with other people. I think it helps a great deal in developing any virtue to to share it with other people. And in the case of, of, of reverence, whenever we are sharing a ceremony, uh, and there are many different kinds of ceremony, they're not all religious. Whenever we're sharing in a ceremony with other people, we are, in fact, sharing a kind of reverence. Because when you're 
conducting a ceremony with the appropriate feelings are uh, recognizing your own uh, limitations with respect to that ceremony. You're not going to interrupt the ceremony or step into the space uh, that is occupied by the ceremony and so on. Uh, there's a long, interesting story about ceremony and reverence. Yeah, we'll get to that in here in a bit. Um, so, I mean, why is reverence important? Because I think in this day and age, you know, if, if reverence is sort of this recognizing your limitations and having, um, you know, and avoiding hubris, I mean, it seems like our day and age is just like, no, you know, like we are limitless. We can do whatever we want. Uh, we can conquer anything if we put our mind to it and our will to it. Um so why would reverence be an important counter to that uh, imp- that feeling that we have to like try to be limitless in our lives? Well, I think it's important because without reverence, we are vulnerable to fall into hubris. Uh, hubris leads to overreaching and overreaching to catastrophe. The Greeks understood this very well. That's the kernel of tragic wisdom. And we've seen examples of this. I think uh, the United States, after uh, what it believed to be a triumphant success, Cold War, uh, went on a, a, a rampage of hubristic decisions. Uh, we, we deregulated important elements of the economy, which produced the crash of 08. Uh, we invaded Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, there are, of course, are controversies about these, but I think it's fairly clear now that the, the idea that we could, by force of arms, create a friendly democracy in Iraq uh, was full of hubris. It was a disastrous decision. And a good example of a failure of reverence in in high places. Oh yeah. Well, let's look, yeah, that, that was interesting. The point you made that um, hubris is most, we're most susceptible to hubris in the, the point of victory. I think Napoleon even talked about that. They said the most dangerous moment in battle is the moment of victory because that's when people, that's when soldiers can get a little crazy and just go on a rampage or they'll get overconfident and let their guard down a bit. Well, I'm thinking of Napoleon uh, believing that he could conquer uh, and Hitler having the same view, thinking that he could send an army into Russia and bring it to its knees. Both uh, decisions led to catastrophes for the invading armies. So we just talked about reverence on a uh, a meta level, a very public level. I mean, but let's go down to the individual. How can reverence make us, you know, better parents or better citizens or better, uh, you know, teachers, for example? Well, I think a very important virtue for parents and teachers and for anybody who has authority over others, it's valuable to be able to remember at each point that you're not a god, uh, that you can be wrong, that you need to listen to other people uh, who don't listen, our parents who may very well find themselves seriously at odds with their children. And I see examples of this every year in my, among my own students. If they have parents who are, who, who are not listening to them, there, there can be very serious breaks. Uh, it can lead to uh, catastrophes for the, for the family and the students. Uh, a student who, 
who can't tell his parents that uh, he wants he doesn't want to go to medical school he might have no other recourse than to fail all his courses and i've seen that happen that's a self-destructive result a, a, a student who cannot tell his parents uh, that he's gay uh, may take his life and i've seen that sad result too uh, and that's because of a lack of reverence on the part of this it's uh, very sad to watch that teachers also i think need to be able to listen and remember that they're not divine yeah and that can be hard whenever you have a, a class full of people in there who are forced to listen to you <laughs> right they're there right uh, and get to your head um so you mentioned, uh, we've mentioned the ancient Greeks and the ancient Chinese and about their insights about reverence. Why did they think and write so much about the virtue of reverence? I mean, why was it important to them? Uh, reverence was important in the Confucian tradition, I think, for two reasons. One is that uh, ceremony was very much built into this culture from the beginning. And I think a large part of Confucius' motivation in trying to introduce ethical reforms in the early period uh, was that he felt that ceremonies were being conducted uh, merely by rote, without any sense of their, their meaning, without any feeling for what they meant. So he said, for example, about uh, filial piety, about, uh, he said, uh, so, so the son... Uh, gives food to his elderly parents uh, any better than the the man, the owner who gives food to his dog. Uh, the difference would be in the feeling of reverence that accompanied the act of piety and so on. So it was very important for them in connection with ceremony. I think it was also important to the Chinese because Chinese culture was traditionally very hierarchical. And I, I think the more hierarchical the culture, the more important it is that people high up in the hierarchy recognize and are frequently reminded uh, that they're not gods. And part of the purpose of ceremony in Chinese political life, I think, was to remind the emperor and other high up people uh, that there was something to which they were subordinate. So the emperor was called the son of heaven. Uh, one way of reminding him he's not God. And in the ancient Greeks, I mean, why why was reverence so important to them? Why was reverence so important for the for the Greeks? Yes, I think it was important for the Greeks uh, for different reasons. The Greek life was never so ceremonial, uh, and it wasn't so hierarchical. The Greeks, I think, were uh, resistant to hierarchy right from Homeric times. We see the soldiers trying to rebel against the generals in the beginning of Homer's Iliad. But as the Greeks developed uh, democratic institutions, it became very important for them to recognize the difference between a leader and a tyrant. And the difference is reverence. Uh, that shows up a lot in Greek literature. Tyrant is full of hubris, uh, inflamed by hubris. He overreaches and stumbles, and there's a disaster for him and sometimes for his people as well. Whereas the leader, uh, out of reverence, recognizes his humanity, recognizes the humanity of others, and is a more equal part of the community. 
So for Greeks, I think it was part of the democratic thinking. That's interesting. So there's like two different political systems, one very hierarchical, one more democratic, but both relied on reverence to to keep them going. That's how I see it. Yeah. And yeah, in the ancient Greeks, you're right. They did write a lot about reverence. I mean, I think the the tragedies, it's all, it's all about reverence when you get down to it. I think so. Right. I mean, Oedipus Rex, you know, he, this guy, that's when he became a tyrant when he just killed that guy on the road that ended up being his dad. Didn't show reverence there. Um, and then I guess uh, Antigonia, is that the one where the guy couldn't bury, the, the lady couldn't bury her brother? Right. right. Yeah. All acts of hubris. Um, it's really interesting. So let's talk about this. You, you say uh, reverence is a forgotten virtue. Why is that? Why, have, why has reverence become a forgotten virtue in our day and age? Well, I think there are two reasons why, especially uh, in American culture, uh, reverence is, is forgotten. Uh, one of them is that we have forgotten the importance of ceremony. And that has something to do with the revolution in Christianity that that the Reformation represents. Protestants uh, increasingly uh, have rejected ceremony, which they associated with the Catholics that they were rejecting. Well, I think that's part of it is the the uh, intensely Protestant nature of our of our culture. And I say that as somebody who grew up in a Protestant tradition. Uh, but I think it's also due to our uh, cultural commitment to rejecting hierarchy. I think there's a sad faith in that because there's hierarchy everywhere you look in our society. We're not free of hierarchy. And yet uh, we like to think that we are. And so we, uh, we forget uh, that very often we are in positions of great authority that require reverence. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made to measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off the rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made to measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. 
I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best, become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. You know, it's interesting that we, you know, we don't we don't have much of a hierarchy um, in our culture today, but you know, even the Greeks, they didn't have really hierarchy, but yet they were able to still cultivate reverence. So why, I mean, why were they able to do it, but we're not able to? Uh, I think that the ancient Greeks had a, uh, uh, had a culture that was infused with the tragic wisdom that uh, arrogance leads to overreaching, which leads to a fall. And we just don't seem to have that in our culture. And I I think that perhaps we don't have it in the culture because our history has been one of, of successful overreaching from one side of the country to the other. Uh, America has, uh, has been uh, very successful in, in reaching on what we're supposed to be its boundaries. The, the War of Independence was partly about pushing back the boundaries that the British had set for westward expansion. We just don't like limits. We don't like human limits at all. We, we I think, are, are reluctant in our culture to accept human limitations. I think we've reached a point which we're going to be in 
more and more serious trouble okay. if we don't. If we don't recognize, recognize our limitations. Well, okay, let's go back to this idea of, of ceremony and, and the reverent life. I mean, why, why is ritual and ceremony an important part of reverence? I, I think we, we develop reverence by, by speaking the, the language of reverence, which is the language of ritual and ceremony. Uh, when, when you meet and shake hands, uh, we don't think of that as anything terribly special, uh, but it is actually, it seems to me, expressing uh, a measure of, of reverence. Here we are in, in, uh, together, we're, we're both human, uh, we greet each other, we shake hands. Uh, when a student puts up uh, her hand in the classroom uh, before speaking so as not to interrupt another, uh, that's an act of, of, of reverence, a very small and subtle one, but a very important one, because it, it, it is a, a, a little ceremony that, that greases, uh, oils the, the gears of, of human interaction. And I mean, it, but it, as you said, uh, Confucius was worried about the possibility of having ceremony without reverence, um, sort of sort of just rote thing. So I mean, how do you ensure that these rituals or ceremonies that we that pop up in our life, whether big or small, um, maintain a, a, a measure of reverence within them? That's hard, and I think it's also really important. I think to maintain meaningful. Uh, ritual and ceremony, we have to be prepared to change as society itself changes. What it, what it means uh, to be a friend uh, in terms of, of ritual and ceremony is being changed by the internet. Uh, and I, as an older person, don't know this very well, but there are, of course, rituals that are involved in the social media that that are being adopted without much forethought, but I think they're probably very important to the ongoing uh, relationships that that develop on these, these on these new media. Uh, we have to be prepared uh, for all kinds of of change. Uh, if you if you just stick uh, with the same ceremonies and let them become dry and brittle and stiff. Uh, then, of course, the feeling is going to fall away from them, and we'll go look for something else. So a lot of traditional forms of, of Christian worship are, are falling away, among Protestants especially, and we have new styles of, new styles of worship, new styles of church, and that's what we, we need is a willingness uh, to evolve new, new ceremonies or to find ways of... of, of infusing old ceremonies with new meaning. So, I mean, I guess it is possible. So reverence to tradition, uh, you can have it, but you don't want it to be rigid because that's what will lead to that sort of calcified, empty ritual. And calcified I, is a good word, yeah. And so, I mean, I guess you could use your reverence towards tradition to maybe yes. create something new, revitalize. Using that reverence towards tradition to revitalize and make something new. Exactly. Well put. I think that's, I mean, it reminds me, we had... Um, uh, Ted Linden on the pod. He's a classicist. He wrote The Ghost of War. 
And he talked about the ancient Greeks reverence towards Homer and the Iliad and the, the, the epic poems. And that's so they sort of use that reverence to create new ways to, of fighting. So the phalanx was inspired by that, but it was new. It was radically different from what, how they fought in the Iliad, but they had this reverence towards it that allowed them to create this new form of battle, more a ritualized form of battle. Uh, yes. For the, for the Greeks, especially, uh, War did involve uh, ritual. They went into battle singing the paean. They uh, they went into battle in line, each man carrying a fairly small shield, which protected both himself and this and the arm of the man uh, to his left. Uh, this is a, a concept that that I think is is still important in in our own in our own military. Part of the goal of military training is. Teach people through military ceremony uh, how to be interdependent and how to function together in a unit and have a, a reverent attitude towards war. Yes, which is kind it's kind of interesting. People wouldn't think you'd need reverence in war, but the Greeks are very conscious about being reverent even in war. Well, yes, and they're conscious of the of how easy it is in war uh, to overreach. The Iliad is 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 wonderful about you know Patroclus uh, goes off into battle wearing Achilles' armor, which is already a, a little act of hubris, uh, and is so successful partly because people think he is Achilles and run away from him. So successful that he goes too far, and because he goes too far, he's killed. And then the man who kills him, Hector, is so puffed up with his own uh, success at killing Patroclus and and winning various other aspects of the battle, uh, that he stays out on the battlefield after his wise uh, younger brother advises him to go in. And that leads to disaster. So they were well aware that you need to keep yourself uh, uh, under control in battle and realize that you are mortal, that you can be hurt, uh, and that the people around you can be hurt. Um, so you mentioned shame earlier, um, and you, you talk about shame a lot throughout the book. And shame, I feel like today in our culture, has a, a, a stigma to it. Like shame is bad. You don't want to feel shameful. There's Shame is, to- shame is toxic, uh, is the thing you say. But you argue that shame it plays a vital role in the, a reverent life. Why is that? Well, shame, I think, uh, think of as as alien to our, our culture. Uh, and, and along with that, we pretend that honor is not very important either. Honor and shame are the, a pair of, of values, good and, good and bad. In my experience as a, a manager and, and leader in the academic sphere, I was a chairman and a dean and a director. I've had lots of administrative jobs. In my experience, People are more concerned about honor and shame in the workplace than they are about their salaries. Salaries matter partly because the lower salary uh, is thought of painful and the higher salary is thought of as an honor. I think we're, shame is, is, is the most, one of the most powerful motivators in human life. Shame gets you moving. The coach will get the player moving by shaming the player in the in in warfare 
uh, people go forward into danger because they're ashamed uh, in the face of their friends uh, to run away. Uh, shame is enormously important. But shame, of course, can lead us to do terrible things. So I think it's important to recognize that the reverent person uh, feels shame at the right time and in the right way and for the right reasons. One reason Hector dies in the Iliad is that he's ashamed to go in and face the brother who advised him to stay out. Uh, and shame leads to death, which leads to the destruction of Troy. So shame can be terribly harmful. So we're right to be nervous about it. But so can other emotions. Anger can be harmful. Anger makes you want to hit people. And anger can be very harmful. On the other hand, we need to have a capacity for anger. Because when things are, are wrong, when wrong things are done to us or people around us, if we don't feel anger, I think we're seriously morally deficient. But like shame, anger and felt in the right way, in the right amount, and at the right people, and so on. So the virtuous person is the person who's committed uh, to uh, directing these emotions in the in the best way. So I think this raises an interesting point. So shame and honor, they're, they're social feelings, right? They're feelings you yes. get because other people are watching you. Um, yes. And so, I mean, that, I guess that ins- suggests that reverence, it's hard to have, live a reverent life by yourself as a, as a hermit. Um, I mean, do you need to be embedded in a community to actually, you know, live the full expression of reverence? I believe that, Yes. I think for, for all of the virtues, you need to get it in a community. It's, we are social animals. Uh, we need each other for, I mean, we, to be human is to speak a language. You can't speak a language yourself. You, you need to have other people in order to learn a language, let alone actually speak it. So I, I, I think being part of a community is essential to be a human being. The, the Greeks, again, who have such an influence on my thought, the Greeks felt that a human being was a social animal and therefore couldn't really live a human life as, as, a, as a recluse entirely. A god would have the power uh, to live alone, and they thought that wild beasts might be able to live alone. They might, I think they were wrong about the beasts. But the thought that you could live a fully human life completely on your own without being part of a community is the hubris of thinking that you have divine powers. We're not divine. We need each other. And do those individuals you're embedded with, like in order to be reverent, do they also need to be reverent? I mean, what if you live in a a community that just full of irreverence? Um, Would it be possible to cultivate that virtue within yourself, surrounded by other individuals who don't have reverence? I think there's a lot of luck in uh, living a virtuous life. If you're born into a slaveholding society and, you, and you're taught to treat other human beings with violence and contempt, uh, it will be hard for you uh, to be a good person. If uh, you're born into a, a society that has uh, only contempt uh, for ceremony, and, and politeness, it will be hard for you to cultivate reverence. 
perhaps impossible. I think if you're born into a society that is deeply vicious in one way or another, you're morally unlucky. I, I sometimes use the example of courage. Suppose I, I want to be courageous, and I've been put in a military unit that is commanded by a, a coward, uh, in which everyone is a coward. I want to practice acts of courage to become more courageous, but I simply cannot practice courage by myself. If I, if I run up alone against the machine gun nest, I do something really stupid and I'll be killed, and that's not courage. Courage is not stupid. You need to develop a virtue. You need to be able to practice it. And to practice it, you need to be with other people who allow you to practice it, who give you a context in which you can practice it. But we, we need virtuous communities. So you need to be thoughtful about the people you associate with if you want to cultivate this virtue. That's, that's true. I was, I was pleased one of, my, one of my daughters actually chose her high school with this in mind. She thought if she went to high school A, uh, she would uh, have to be part of a, a community that uh, would be good for her. So she went to high school B instead, recognizing, I think, intuitively the importance of the kind of community you're in for the kind of person you grew up. Did that, feel, that make you feel proud as a, as a dad and as a philosophy professor? Oh, yes. Yeah, I bet. Um, so we've been talking about sort of around the edge of things you can do to cultivate reverence in your life, um, you know, take part in ceremonies, recognize your limitations. But I mean, your book's about renewing reverence. I mean, any, I know it's, it's hard to boil this down into like, you know, five talking points, but uh, any things or actions that people can do to cultivate a more reverent life within themselves? Well, first of all, I think we should pay attention. Uh, there are awe-inspiring experiences uh, that we can so easily have. Uh, the, uh, uh, the beauty uh, of... Th there's beauty in, in, in things that we normally think of as being ugly. Uh, you, you, you walk across a, a road and there's a little oil spill and there's a, a rainbow in a puddle. That could be awe-inspiring. We can practice awe by paying attention to all the beauties around us, by, by noticing the beauty in the most common uh, sparrow that flies across in front of us. We can pay attention uh, to the sunrise and the sunset. Everyone gets one each of those a day, uh, and they're awe-inspiring. So paying attention is the first thing. I think... Uh, the, the second talking point I would have about uh, renewing reverence is finding occasions to speak of languages of reverence, finding ceremonial occasions of various kinds. Uh, I think music is one of the languages of reverence. Poetry can be of reverence. You don't have to go to a church or, or a synagogue or a mosque or a temple uh, to have the kind of experience that that will cultivate reverence for you, with you. Uh, and then perhaps the third thing is to keep asking yourself uh, what you're doing. Uh, 
pay attention to your your own actions and what they what they mean. It, it would be very dangerous to suppose. Well, <clears throat> I've uh, I've been a reverent person all my all my life, and I am safely ensconced in in my virtue. Uh, I don't have to worry about this anymore. That, that's very dangerous. That's hubris, in fact. Uh, so you need to be aware of yourself and of what you're doing on each occasion and never feel that you've got it made, uh, morally speaking. Think of reverence as a continuing commitment and not something you achieve. And then with other people, I, I talk about asking the, the right question, the most irreverent-seeming person has somewhere in him or her uh, a little uh, sprout, a little green growing sprout of reverence that you could identify if you the right question. So ask the right questions. That's great. Well, Professor Woodruff, this has been a great conversation. Um, is there any pl- anywhere people can go to learn more about your work? Well, uh, I don't have a, a website, but my books are all on uh, Amazon and they're all in print. And so, so you can find... There's a, there's a little page in Amazon with my, my things on it. The most recent book is uh, a, a second edition of the book on reverence, which has a new chapter on renewing reverence and also a chapter on sacred, respecting what is sacred in other people's traditions, which I think is very important. And also a chapter on compassion, which I believe is a very important part of reverence. And then uh, the, the most recent book uh, before that revision is called the Ajax Dilemma, which is really about reverent leadership. Well, very good. Well, we'll uh, be sure to link to that on our, our website when we publish the podcast so people can find those. Um, professor Woodruff, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. My guest today is Paul Woodruff. He's a professor of humanities at the University of Texas. He's also the author of the book, Reverence, Renewing a Forgotten Virtue, and it's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. If you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us out. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. 
Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.